So I didn't do a rant on this topic because it would have just been me in a blind rage screaming bloody murder at the camera. I figured a fuller, more researched explanation would be easier on people's ears. <laughs> You're welcome. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. So this past week, a leaked copy of Justice Alito's draft majority opinion overruling Roe v. Wade rocked the country. The draft, confirmed as authentic by Chief Justice Roberts, was published in Politico and in very clear terms overturns both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, fundamentally ending the constitutional right to abortion in America. Although this is not the court's official final position, if the decision in the Mississippi case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health comes down in June looking anything like this draft, abortion becomes illegal in 28 states overnight. Despite the fact that blue states are working overtime to solidify the right to abortion care and would enthusiastically welcome women from out of state, should the Republicans win power in 2022 and take the presidency in 2024, they have been very clear that their plan is to pass legislation to outlaw abortion across America. So you may be safe in your blue state now, but if we let this happen, no one will be for very long. This opinion from Justice Alito is nothing short of an all-out assault on women's rights, personhood, and personal liberties. And you could know it was coming and still be horrified by it. Dan Pfeiffer from Crooked Media calls the decision a hinge point in our history. He says, It can't be understated what a seismic shift this is for our court to overturn 50 years of precedent, not to give people more rights and make the country more fair, but to take rights away and make it less so. The concern about what this opinion means, not only for people who depend on the availability of abortion care, but also for people who depend on other fundamental rights related to the 1973 ruling, cannot be minimized. As President Biden and hundreds of legal commentators have pointed out, Alito's stated reasoning for overturning Roe, that there is no reference to abortion in the Constitution and it is not deeply rooted in the nation's history— could seemingly be applied to a lot of other legal precedents that are all counted on by citizens of this country. As Leah Littman and Steve Vladek wrote for Slate, it would be foolish to assume that if overruling Roe could move as quickly as it did, that Obergefell, gay marriage, Lawrence, gay sex, Griswold, contraception, and Loving, interracial marriage, aren't also on the table. These are all intensely personal decisions that people expect to make in a free society, and it's terrifyingly autocratic to think the government can just come in and start making these decisions for you. But let's back it up, and let's go through the crisis we're experiencing step by step so we understand where we are, what we can expect, and most importantly, what we can do. For 49 years, the law of the land has been that you can't legally ban abortion before fetal viability, which is around 23-24 weeks, and anyone who wants to do so would be passing an unconstitutional law that would be struck down by the court. The protection of abortion falls in the liberty interest of the 14th Amendment. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The 14th Amendment was enacted after the Civil War. It's the amendment that guarantees equality and liberty, two of the most important things in a free society. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was the 1992 case that reaffirmed the right to abortion, the fetal viability line, and that the decision to have an abortion should be between a woman and her doctor, were both based on this guarantee of liberty, 
which the court interpreted as protecting a woman's right to choose free from unreasonable government interference. The Roe decision said that the liberty interest included a right to privacy, and the Casey decision expanded on that, saying the right to choose whether and when to have a child made it easier for women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation. Nancy Northup, president and CEO for the Center of Reproductive Rights, says, If you think about this kind of personal decision that we in a free society believe people should make for themselves, decisions like who you marry, how you form your family, how you raise your children, those are all critical parts of our freedom and liberty. And those are all the things that are supposed to be protected by the 14th Amendment. Justice Alito's leaked draft rejects this reasoning arguing that the right to an abortion is not a protected liberty interest because it is not rooted in the country's history and tradition. According to Adam Liptick of the New York Times, Alito's opinion reads like a running list of conservative talking points dating back to the Reagan administration that basically boils down to, one, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion, so states can allow it, regulate it, or ban it. And two, Roe was such a weak case to begin with that it doesn't deserve the respect owed to other court precedents. Liptic points out that if nothing else, the draft opinion demonstrates at least one thing clearly, that despite what they said in their confirmation hearings about Roe being settled law, as soon as the justices heard arguments challenging the case, at least five of them, Alito, Barrett, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, voted to overrule it in their private conference. The case was heard in December, and Alito's almost 100-page opinion was already written by February. And this opinion, as Amy Kupchinski, director of the Law and Political Economy Project at Yale Law School, herself a former Supreme Court clerk, says, is such a radical opinion. She goes on to say, it just takes a sledgehammer to decades-old Supreme Court precedent in a way that's hard to tell who's next. Neil Cattayall, former U.S. Solicitor General and professor at Georgetown Law, says this draft shows a stark future for America. It's the hugest step back for women, for reproductive justice, for reproductive freedom, and it's going to have profound consequences. Because unlike all previous suggested bans, this opinion blesses the Mississippi law that includes no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the pregnant person. In fact, as Nancy Northup points out, this opinion is written with the complete erasure of the impact that restricting abortion will have on pregnant people. There is no discussion or thought for the person that will be forced to carry these pregnancies to term. At no point in the opinion does Alito even reference the person carrying the baby, what it might do to them, what taking this decision from them might feel like, what it could do to their body, what it could do to their physical or mental health. No thought or consideration for the person at all. Emily Bazelon, columnist for the New York Times Magazine and senior research fellow at Yale Law, notes that the opinion is, in fact, completely missing the extensive social science evidence that links abortion access to women's education, labor force participation, occupation, and earnings. It ignores the fact that abortion continues to function as a lever of equality in our society, and despite the 1978 law that's supposed to protect them from discrimination, it ignores the fact that pregnant people are often still denied accommodations at work, that women are still experiencing economic penalties for motherhood, and that economists agree that the financial effects of being denied an abortion are as large or larger than that of being evicted, losing your health insurance, or being hospitalized. But Justice Alito's opinion considers none of this. 
He lists a series of arguments by opponents of abortion like society's generally more accepting attitude towards unmarried pregnant women, the state and federal laws that have been passed to ban discrimination on the basis of pregnancy. He cites family leave laws that everyone who lives in America knows full well we don't really have, and health insurance and government assistance that cover the cost of having a baby, which again completely ignores premiums, co-pays, and the uninsured. Finally, Alito mentions fellow Justice Amy Coney Barrett's suggestion that safe haven laws, which allow women to drop off a 3-10 to 10 day old baby at certain locations anonymously without facing criminal child endangerment charges, are a good solution to women who aren't ready to be mothers. As if the burden of growing that child for nine months and then giving it away on a doorstep is something they can just move on from. He also says that adoption has improved so much that most people don't have to worry about putting a child up for adoption and they won't end up in a good home. Again, completely ignoring the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of kids in the foster care system that can't find anything resembling a good home. The Supreme Court functions using something called stare decisis, which is Latin for to stand by things decided, or the idea that the court should generally respect its own decisions, especially decisions around which people have built their lives. But Justice Alito is clear that stare decisis shouldn't stop them from overruling Roe or Casey because it's his opinion that those cases were egregiously wrong from the beginning. So they got to go, which is a crazy way to look at the law for a Supreme Court justice. Even people who agree that Roe wasn't a great decision from the beginning question Alito's mindset here. People like George Conway, conservative lawyer and one of the founders of the Lincoln Project. He says... I don't think Roe was decided correctly, but you can't just overturn it now. It's too far down the line. It's become too much a part of our established society. Stare decisis means it's settled. It's done. Society relies on these decisions, and we base our rule of law and our society on them. Neil Katyal agrees with Conway, saying social expectations have crystallized around Roe. The conservative judges said as much when they decided Casey. He goes on to say... Even if Roe was questionable back in the day, it's been relitigated over and over since then. You can't just overrule it without doing grave damage to the legitimacy of the court itself. Overruling the court's prior decisions undermines their own authority. We base our society on decided laws. If laws can just change willy-nilly depending on who sits on the court, then our society isn't stable. As Conway says, it's too radical to just undo a law we've had for 50 years like this. No matter what you think of the original decision, it is now part of the framework of our society, and people have planned their lives around it. But Justice Alito and the four other justices who have signed on seem to care very little for the court's legitimacy in the wake of their own power. Alito's opinion goes on to cite an incredibly long list of the times the court has overruled precedent. He includes landmark cases on racial equality and gay rights, trying to make the argument that without overruling those cases, American constitutional law would be unrecognizable. What he fails to point out is exactly what we said before, that the laws that were overturned in the past were to give people more rights. His ruling is taking rights away. But taking rights away from women seems right up Alito's alley, as his opinion relies heavily on a 17th century English jurist named Sir Matthew Hale. Hale, who had two women executed for witchcraft, wrote a defense on marital rape, and believed capital punishment should extend to children as young as 14, feels like a weird choice to lean on to interpret a law in 2022. 
Alito's argument cites a text published in 1736, laying the foundations for the legality of marital rape across the world. And while allowing marital rape might sound like something from a bygone era, we need to remember that it was actually legal in most of the United States through the 1990s and continues to be allowed or at least treated very differently under the law in some states today. So here we are, about a month from the Supreme Court striking down a basic human right of half the American population, based in part on an opinion of some guy who lived in the 1600s and felt a man should be free to rape their wives and that mouthy capable women were probably witches. And so, yeah, that should really piss you off. Alito goes on to add insult to injury by basically blaming the women's rights movement for this decision. He argues that because feminism has moved women's rights so far along, we don't need abortion anymore. The implication being that women no longer need the availability of abortion, if they ever did, because contraception and adoption are widely available now and people don't shun unmarried pregnant people the way they used to. And we can have our health care and get our own credit cards and stuff, so pregnancy isn't going to hold us back. But then he says, if you think it will, then women can just, quote, take their feelings to the ballot box because, quote, women aren't without electoral or political power. So essentially, Alito argues that they're going to take away our liberties, and if we don't like them, then we can use the liberties we still have to try and fix it. And people are wondering why women are mad. As abortion rights experts point out, this whole argument really rubs salt in the wound because the same group of people making this argument about women not needing abortion because of all the advances the country's made around pregnancy and women's rights are the same people who have fought and voted against paid family leave, safe haven laws, affordable daycare, universal health care, and anything else that would make pregnancy and or being a parent easier. They are using the same things they fought against as the reasons we don't need abortion. Just a double tap on feminism. You brought this on yourself, ladies. Alito ties up his reasoning with an emotional plea for women's mental health by saying, while we find no reliable data to measure this phenomenon, it seems unbelievable to conclude that some women don't end up regretting their choice to have an abortion. And that kind of regret would cause severe depression and a loss of self-esteem. So he's just looking out for us. But tell me, if you think regretting an abortion causes depression, what do you think carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term does? What do you think being pregnant with your rapist baby feels like? What do you think having your father's baby does to your self-esteem or carrying a dead baby inside your body does to your mental health? This has nothing to do with women's mental health or our well-being and everything to do with religious power and control. And the fact that Alito includes this completely unscientific claim, despite the fact that they couldn't find any reliable data is just embarrassing. Ultimately, after making it exceptionally clear where he stands, Alito doesn't actually make a ruling, but just kicks the whole thing back to the states, saying that the constitutionally protected right to an abortion is over, and the authority to regulate a pregnancy is now in the hands of state elected officials. But this idea that by kicking abortion back to the states, they're not actually making it illegal is ludicrous. States have been passing burdens on abortion access for years. Unnecessary medical regulations, waiting periods, all the box checking and red tape a clinic has to go through just to be open and provide care is extraordinary. Under Alito's draft opinion, there is no constitutional guarantee to an abortion. So states can just go ahead and say no abortion at all at any time for any reason. 
Half the states in the nation are already ready to ban or completely overturn abortion as soon as Roe's gone. 13 states already have trigger laws on the books, so as soon as the ruling is reversed, abortion becomes illegal statewide, no debate, no conversation, no new law needed. There is going to be large swaths of the country, particularly in the South and the Midwest, where people have to drive extraordinarily long distances or take a flight or go to another country in order to get access to abortion services. We have laws on the books allowing rapist families to sue for custody, laws that make an abortion a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison, laws that say you can't leave the state if you're pregnant, and of course we have Texas's stock women who might be pregnant and turn them in for cash prizes law. It only took three days after this leaked opinion for Louisiana to push a fetal viability law through their legislature, making the fetus a life from the moment of conception. And all of this has happened before Roe was overturned. What will happen when it's actually gone? People need to understand how far the U.S. is standing apart from the rest of the civilized world on this. In the past 30 years, 50 countries have legalized their abortion laws, and the only countries backsliding the way we are are countries whose democracies are eroding, like Poland and Hungary. Is this what we want in America? We are moving into a future that's dangerous for anyone who can get pregnant, know someone who's pregnant, or help someone who's pregnant. We know that criminalizing abortion doesn't stop people from getting abortions. Statistics show us that people who don't want to be pregnant will still seek treatment reversing it. This law just makes it harder, less safe, and adds what experts are calling a chilling criminal element to the entire thing. Don't forget that fetal personhood laws and the criminalization of abortion put all miscarriages at risk of being a crime. We're creating a world in which people have to prove that they had a miscarriage and not an abortion. We're looking at a future in the United States where a woman coping with the heartbreak of losing a pregnancy might also be facing jail time. That a woman giving birth to a stillborn child or a pregnant woman in a car accident might be charged with manslaughter. A fetus doesn't even have to die in certain states to charge a pregnant woman with a crime. There are stories of a woman who fell down the stairs, a woman who ate a poppy seed bagel and failed a drug test, and women who took drugs prescribed by their doctors who have all been accused of endangering their children. Every day we have more and more laws being passed that treat the fetus as a person and the woman as less than one. In many lawmakers' mind, the pregnant person is simply a host, a life support system for a clump of cells that has more rights than she does. There is a deep shift in American society, away from a centuries-long tradition of prioritizing the life of the mother to a relatively new concept that the fetus in the womb has the same, if not priority, rights. This idea has worked its way into the federal and state regulations and the thinking of police officers and prosecutors. Fetal rights gain strength in many ways as a reaction to the Roe decision itself, and, if we're being honest, as a reaction to women just out there living their lives, which a lot of people, especially religious people, do not like. As soon as the decision is handed down, states will be able to ban abortions from the moment of conception, and women will be forced to give birth against their will. Some will travel to states where abortions remain legal, where we can expect longer waiting times to increase as out-of-state patients come in. Some people will have illegal abortions. Some people will end up in prison. Some people facing pregnancy complications will see their treatment postponed. And some people will die. Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for the New York Times, makes it clear that America without Roe v. Wade will be a dark place. She writes that post-Roe America will not look like pre-Roe America. In the years before Roe, even when abortion was illegal, 
doctors usually had some latitude to decide when it was justifiable to perform one. Determining when abortion was necessary was left to the medical profession. Today, as Goldberg points out, we live in a world where the populist right wing now wildly distrust medical and scientific experts. So legislatures are giving doctors less flexibility in medical decisions. Several states have passed laws that allow doctors to terminate a pregnancy only when the life of the mother is in immediate peril, forcing women with health-endangering pregnancies to wait until they are in serious distress before getting the care they need. Post-Roe, I guess we just let those people die. That seems to be the plan. Before Roe, women were rarely prosecuted for abortion, although they were sometimes threatened with prosecution to get them to testify against a provider. The creation of a fetal personhood law has been the steady work of the anti-abortion movement all across the country. Today, at least 38 states and the federal government have fetal homicide laws, which treats the fetus as a potential crime victim separate and apart from the woman who carries it. In the hands of overeager prosecutors, cautious doctors, and litigious attorneys, these laws have created a system that polices pregnancies. And with the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, these laws are only likely to multiply and get worse. We already have women going to jail for child endangerment for doing drugs or trying to commit suicide while pregnant. Fetal endangerment and fetal homicide haven't applied to women having abortions, but once Roe is gone, people who terminate their pregnancies are likely to be treated as murderers. Consider the idea of state extradition charges filed for premeditated murder if a pregnant woman travels across state lines to get a legal abortion in another state. Could doctors performing legal abortions in one state be charged by another state for murdering a child? These things are only going to get messier. Republicans are telling us that not only will abortions be illegal, but they plan to criminalize them in a way that will be terrifying to women. We'll have people trying to help, creating networks and ways to transport women to get them the services they need. But what kind of country is that, where women have to lie and sneak and pay to get around laws that should never exist in the first place? Most people won't have enough. Not enough connections, not enough money, not enough time off work, not enough help with childcare. It's a completely dystopian reality these justices are setting us up for. A world where women have to live in fear and be treated like criminals for simply wanting to control their own bodies. Women who live in blue states might be safe for now, but it's not going to last. Anti-abortion groups and their congressional allies are already planning for a nationwide abortion ban. Mitch McConnell just said at point blank that if and when Republicans retake power, they're looking to make abortion illegal across the country. So much for states' rights. Anyone who can get pregnant, whether or not they think they will ever want or need an abortion, is going to be affected. We're looking at an America with government-mandated pregnancies with no thought for the health and life of the mother. There were 861 maternal deaths in 2020, with the death rate for black women being almost three times higher than that for white women. And for every U.S. woman who dies as a result of pregnancy or childbirth, up to 70 suffer dangerous and sometimes life-threatening complications. The treatment for an atopic pregnancy is abortion. The treatment for a septic uterus is abortion. The treatment for a miscarriage that your body won't release is an abortion. If you can't get those abortions, you die. You die, and the far right is okay with that. In fact, if SCOTUS strikes down Roe v. Wade— Researchers expect that roughly 75,000 people who want but can't get abortions will have to give birth the following year. 75,000. And, according to the Center for Reproductive Rights, in a brief submitted for this Mississippi case, signed by 550 public health officials and reproductive researchers, there is a straight line between the lack of abortion access and increased maternal death. 
Put simply, women living in states with the most restrictive abortion policies were found to be far more likely to die while pregnant or shortly thereafter, regardless of differences in poverty, race, or education. So without Roe, those numbers are just going to go up. But this isn't just about pregnant people who will die or have their lives irrevocably changed by this decision. This opens Pandora's box for other personal liberties we take for granted to be overturned. And we're going to talk all about that and what we can do about it after some messages from those who made this episode possible. Stick around. If you run a business, you know that clients demand instant responses. But now more than ever, businesses are spread thin. If you think you're losing leads from visitors to your website or missing calls that could grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to a fantastic and award-winning virtual reception service, Smith AI. Smith AI provides businesses with friendly and professional agents that can screen leads using your custom criteria, schedule appointments on your calendar, and call back leads who complete your forms. They can handle all your calls, chats, and texts. You can end up unlocking a whole new section of your business for the fraction of the cost of hiring in-house staff. Work uninterrupted, with less stress, and get more leads from your marketing efforts. Smith AI will pay for itself and then some, with the new clients their receptionist can help you win. It's as simple as forwarding your calls to Smith AI. Try Smith AI today and see for yourself what business owners are calling the secret to growth and client happiness. Plans start at just $240 a month, and our listeners will save $100 when they sign up using promo code POLITICSGIRL. Visit Smith AI to read the five-star reviews and sign up using our code POLITICSGIRL. Smith AI. You'll never know until you try. <laughs> I love a good rhyme. Our next partner is a product my family uses literally every day, Athletic Greens. We started taking Athletic Greens because we heard they had great results, but I have to tell you, it's not just lip service. We've been on it for well over six months and the difference is night and day. Better sleep, better digestion, just literally overall better health. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, you get 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day off right. Its special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So like all the things. I haven't talked about this before, but not only do I love AG for myself and my family, it's actually a great company in the world as well. AG1 is a climate neutral certified company. They support and protect old growth rainforests. For every purchase, they donate to organizations to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. And last year, they donated over 1.2 million meals to children across the country. So feed your health and the health of other people with the convenient daily nutrition of Athletic Greens. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutrition. Okay, you guys know that I love Blinkist. Blinkist is a book summarizing service that takes top nonfiction books, pulls out the takeaways, and puts them into text and audio explainers called Blinks, so you can learn from them in just 15 minutes. Lately, I realized I was completely out of my depth with the concept of cryptocurrency, but Blinkist has curated an entire collection so people like me can understand crypto, and they call it the Crypto Crash Course. Blinkist has brought together financial experts Patrice Washington, Haley Sachs, and Tanya Rapley to tell us what we should know about cryptocurrency. 
Its programs include titles like 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, and Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller about how stories go viral and drive major economic events, and of course, the Bitcom standard to explain the entire process of decentralized central banking. I mean, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to digging into this. I'm lost and starting to clue out anytime anyone talks about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. I'm so glad Blinkist has put together this round table, and I imagine many of you will be too. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash politicsgirl to get 25% off and a free seven-day trial. Don't you want to be smarter faster? I know I do. So I was just talking about cryptocurrency, and now I'm going to talk about making money in the market. Another thing that deeply confuses me. You know who it doesn't confuse? Our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks is an innovative startup that allows regular people like you and me to invest in art. Usually it's just millionaires who can buy art as an investment. But since 2017, Masterworks has offered over 100 paintings, and they've sold three, each giving a net annualized gain above 30%. That is way higher than you get in the market, even on their best day. Masterworks was founded in 2017 by Scott Lynn, an entrepreneur and art collector. As an art collector himself, he realized that art was the largest asset class that was never securitized or open to regular people. Art is also one of those things whose value can go up even when the market goes down. That's because art doesn't mirror the performance of other types of investments. And unlike NFTs or cryptocurrency, art is real and a tangible asset like real estate. According to statistics, the wealthy invest about 10 to 30% of their investments into alternative assets like art. The Wall Street Journal is calling art one of the hottest markets on earth. So start building a diversified portfolio at masterworks.art slash politicsgirl. Again, that's masterworks.art slash politicsgirl. See important regulation disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. And we're back talking about the fallout of what looks to be the complete eradication of the protections of Roe and Casey to American society. For the past hundred years, we have had a realm of personal liberty that the government can just not enter. Roe sits right in the middle of that, based on cases that came before, around how you can educate your children and what privacy married people had to use contraception, and what came after, like the Casey ruling and the LGBTQ equality. All these cases stand on the same foundation of personal liberty. So trying to argue that somehow the court could overturn Roe by saying there's no personal liberty interest to end a pregnancy and not disturb all the other rights that are also protected under that same amendment is laughable. As Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights and the legal team representing Jackson Women's Health, the Mississippi abortion clinic named in this lawsuit, says you can't just pull Roe out of 100 years of court decisions and think it's not going to disrupt the others. Ben Shapiro has already said that Obergefell, the law that legalizes gay marriage, was a bad Supreme Court decision and should be overturned. The Catholic League tweeted, The same people who were not satisfied with gay marriage and had to push for tranny rights are now upset our side won't stop with a victory in Roe. They're right about that. Why should we? 
Texas Senator John Cornyn just said that gay marriage should be sent back to the states. Indiana Senator Mike Braun said the court should revisit interracial marriage. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said he was considering bringing a case that would challenge the right to public education. Gender-affirming care just became a felony in Alabama. Missouri, Louisiana, and Tennessee just banned Plan B. Peter Thiel-backed GOP Senate candidate J.D. Vance wants to ban condoms. Kansas just passed legislation preventing unrelated people from being roommates. This isn't about health or babies or life. This is about control. Justice Alito rejects the view that getting rid of Roe means other rights, including same-sex marriage, contraception, and interracial marriage, are threatened. But his Roe decision is based on the fact that there is no guarantee in the Constitution to the right to make a decision about ending a pregnancy. But how you educate your children also isn't in the Constitution. Who you live with isn't in the Constitution. Marriage isn't in the Constitution. Women aren't in the Constitution. There are a lot of things that are protected constitutional rights that were criminalized in the past, including same-sex relationships, sodomy, and interracial marriage. To make the argument that abortion wasn't legal in the past, so it shouldn't be legal now, doesn't really fly. If that's your precedent for overturning a law, what happens to all the other laws that have been passed using that precedent? You can't just take away rights from some people and not open the doors to taking away rights from others. Neil Cadial, former U.S. Solicitor General, says, The idea that in order to have a constitutional right, it has to be expressly mentioned in the Constitution or deeply rooted in the history of the country is such a radical and compressed view of a constitutional right. The test that Alito and the majority are using is a game changer. If they choose to overturn Roe using this, then no constitutional right is safe. He goes on to say, the reasoning the court is rejecting now is the reasoning used in gay marriage. So if you think that one won't hit the other like a domino, you're just being willfully naive. The people who argued against gay marriage argued to let the Supreme Court leave it to the states. They said, just let the states decide. And that is exactly the argument that the Supreme Court is making for abortion. So why would opponents of gay marriage not bring it back to the court? It's apparently a winning argument. Short term, the burden of losing Roe is going to fall disproportionately on people who are young and poor. It will divide us along lines of class and race. People with means will still be able to seek out reproductive care. But in the long run, the far right wants a national ban. And not just a ban. They want abortion criminalized. A Republican Congress in 2022 and a Republican president in 2024 would mean just that. They and the Christian far right are all in and turning back the clock on controlling women and on controlling people of color. They are already stripping us of our voting rights. They don't care if they are taking this power undemocratically. This is just the next step. It's worth remembering that Republicans insisted against all evidence that none of the justices they were appointing would overturn Roe, even while promising to appoint justices who would. Donald Trump said he would only have candidates that would overturn the president. Yet in their confirmation hearings, all three of his choices said it was settled law. And Republican Senator Ben Sass called it hysteria for progressives to stage protests, calling attention to the future of Roe v. Wade. Now, this opinion is only in draft form. It was written back in February, and maybe like my first email drafts, they plan to go back and make it more palatable. But these are their real thoughts. This is how they really feel. So whether or not they soften the language, this is what they want, 
and we would be idiots not to take it seriously. Thomas Zimmer says it perfectly when he writes, the impending end of Roe v. Wade will not magically appease the right. Look at every piece of legislation, every political, social, cultural change since at least the 1960s that moved America closer to the ideal of a multiracial, pluralistic democracy. They want them all gone. Republicans cannot be any more clear about what their goal is. 1950s-style, white, Christian, patriarchal dominance. That is their vision for America. Zimmer points out that this wave of red state legislation is intended to eviscerate the civil rights that have been established since the 1960s and banish, outlaw, and censor anything that threatens white Christian dominance, past or present. All radical and social progress needs to be reversed. Republican-led states are moving forward to abolish established practices and protections and are counting on this Supreme Court to not only let them do it, but actually overturn precedent and help them. Democracy doesn't work for them. It only worked for them when they controlled all the levers of power, when the white Christian patriarchy was still in charge. But the more we moved away from that, the more they're fighting back. If they can't be in charge in a democracy, then they will abandon democracy to be in charge. Banning abortion is just the first step. Contraception is on the chopping block, along with gay rights and civil rights. Republicans are already trying to establish their authoritarian white nationalist education system. They're just calling it school choice. They're criminalizing protest. They're banning dissent. They will continue to restrict voting rights and purge election commissions. It's all part of a plan. And if we do nothing, American democracy dies and we lose our civil rights. Remember, individual rights mean nothing in a fascist state because they will always be usurped by the desires of the corporatist autocracy. Alito has shown the hand, and four other justices agree. So what can we do? Well, first of all, you need to be shocked, because this is shocking. But it's also exactly what those of us who have been screaming into the ether have been saying. This is why I cried the night Trump was elected. This is why people felt so angry when they were told they were overreacting. Everybody said this wouldn't happen. Everybody, including the Supreme Court justices themselves, said it was established law, but it's not. They are taking it away. And when they take one freedom, others will follow. People need to wake up and realize they're going to have to work to keep their personal liberties. We are in a situation where the overwhelming amount of people in this country believe abortion should be a decision between a pregnant person and their doctor, not litigated by a state legislator, not planned by a law, not decided by a courtroom, and yet the court is about to decide the exact opposite. The dissonance between what the American people want and what this court is arbitrarily deciding makes things very scary. So maybe we need to question the legitimacy of the court itself. Most legal scholars agree that the Supreme Court has too much power in American life, that the decisions of nine people and the conversations they have with each other can change the daily lives of hundreds of millions of people seems wrong. This particular court is far more conservative than any other court in our lifetime because Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society played politics with who goes on the bench. So now we have the highest court in the land handing down decision after decision, in a way that is way out of the mainstream of the American people. There clearly needs to be some sort of court reform. Personally, I think there should be a rotation. Add four justices to have 13, to match the 13 federal districts, and rotate in nine at a time. 
or get 27 justices and rotate in two full courts at a time. You would hear a lot more cases, justices could take vacations, people wouldn't just stay on the court until they die, and you would never know exactly who you were working with from case to case. So you wouldn't know which justices you were going to get when you came to the Supreme Court, and you wouldn't know the outcomes ahead of time. This entire reversal of Roe was only taken up when Amy Coney Barrett was put on the court because Mississippi knew they had the votes. And that's not justice. That's politics. And that's not how the judicial branch was set up to function. The Democratic Congress is trying to pass a federal law to codify Roe. Maybe they should have gotten on that sometime in the past 40 years instead of waiting until we're at the fucking cliff's edge to put the brakes on, but here we are. The problem is we're dealing with the same Senate we deal with for everything else. So whatever law the Democratic House passes is subject to a filibuster. And unless the Democrats can convince Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to get rid of it, they're going to need 10 Republican votes, 12 if they can't get Manchin or Democratic Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania on board with their bill. Even if we do pass a law codifying our right to an abortion, most legal experts agree it would be challenged. And where does a challenged law go? To the Supreme Court. And I don't think this court is going to rule for a woman's right to choose. Do you? So we need to be realistic that there's not much of a path to success for a new law. But it's important that the Democrats try to at least try and get everyone on the record for where they stand on personal liberty. What we can do is vote way more Democrats into office. Pro-choice Democrats. Democrats who will eliminate the filibuster and pass voting rights. Democrats who will pass a bunch of laws people actually want and prove government can work. Democrats who will expand the Supreme Court and balance justices' scales. And we can't just do that federally. If Roe is overturned, the question of access, autonomy, and criminality falls to the states. So what happens in the midterms will determine which states have access to abortion care and which states do not. We have to elect Democratic governors and Democratic legislatures so we can pass laws guaranteeing access, and then we have to do it again in 2024 and in 2026 and in 2028. We have to keep the presidency and the executive branch out of the hand of these backward-thinking, witch-burning, women-in-the-kitchen, Christo-fascist Republicans. Even if the Democrats don't get full control of the state, they can be a speed bump or a barrier towards even worse laws the Republicans want to pass. The more Democrats in power, the more we slow them down. We can't allow them to push that first domino. And I understand it feels unsatisfying to just say vote. Vote for Democrats at every level. Because it doesn't fix the problem. But electing these Democrats will at least put a finger in the dam while we figure out what we're going to do next. As Andy Slavitt, COVID response coordinator for the Biden administration, said, Laws that demand you take away someone's autonomy, treat them as less than equal, and seek mob justice are driven by hate and fear. But those laws are not your guideposts. They invite your rebellion. Yes, you have to vote. But you can also organize. You can create a group or talk to your neighbors or friends or family. You can do something. Lobby businesses to leave anti-abortion states, challenge state laws, file lawsuits. The Eighth Amendment includes cruel and unusual punishment. Find a lawyer that will make the argument that forcing a person to carry their rapist baby to term falls under that stature. The Thirteenth Amendment says we will have neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. Forced pregnancy feels a bit like involuntary servitude to me. Don't go or send your children to colleges with those kind of abortion laws on the books. 
You want your daughter to be charged with homicide in Louisiana because she doesn't want to have a rapist baby? Do you want your son to be an 18-year-old father because his condom broke? Abortion advocates tell us to say abortion, to say it out loud, to not be ashamed of it, to not feel like we have to use euphemisms like pro-choice, to understand that abortion is healthcare and it is nothing to be ashamed of. We need to talk out loud to everyone about why we think this is important. We need to change the stigma around abortion. We can also give to local and national abortion funds to help people in need right now. One thing we have going for us is that we no longer have to convince people the Republicans are coming for our rights. You can see it with your own eyes. We can see the contempt they have for us, for democracy, for the rule of law. 70% of the country supports the right to abortion. So this isn't about changing the minds of people who don't. It's about making our support visible and our voices heard. The vast majority of people in this country don't want this to happen, but that majority is silent and the minority is so loud. We have to change the balance. This is not just a problem for people who can get pregnant. This is a problem for everyone who believes in personal liberty. As Hillary Clinton said, this opinion is dark and incredibly dangerous. It's not just about a woman's right to choose. It's about way more than that. And I hope people are now fully aware of what we're up against because the only answer is at the ballot box. We need to elect people who will stand up for every American's rights. Because the people saying, well, I'm not a woman, so this doesn't affect me, or I'm not black, so this doesn't affect me, or I'm not gay, so this doesn't affect me. Once you allow this kind of extreme power to take hold, you have no idea who they will come for next. John Lovett from Crooked Media thinks that this draft could be just the fire we need because this decision has taken a divisive issue and made it unifying. He points out that there are few things in this country that enjoy the level of support as access to abortion care does. He says, there is no state in America, it doesn't matter how red it is, where the majority thinks this is a good idea. There is no state in America where the majority thinks getting rid of contraception is a good idea. There is no state in the country where the majority of people believe couples who are struggling to have children should be denied access to medical care or that incest victims should have to bear their rapist baby. It's a losing issue and it exposes just how dangerous the far right has become. So that's it. Know that it is up to us. No matter what happens in the next month, we have to make sure that personal liberties remain the defining issue as we head into the midterms. As Claire McCaskill said, remember our country is not as conservative as the Supreme Court. And we have the power, but only if we vote. If we make sure people understand these stakes, the Republicans don't stand a chance. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.